0: symposium we're your hosts i'm doug daffin
1: i am chris Benderman, and we have a fresh new guest for you again this week who is going to introduce himself right now
2: howdy i'm joshua windsor
0: Mr. tell us a bit about yourself josh
2: i am a uh, 3l with these fine hosts at the university of texas school of law uh from tyler texas uh love a lot of things but uh especially hearing the sound of my own voice so I'm very excited to be here
1: you're in good company um By the way, what he means by 3L is he's a third year about to graduate from the University of Texas School of Law, like me and Doug, barring, of course, the opportunity the school has, in an ongoing sense, to just go ahead and expel us at any time for any reason. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, education at will.
1: Right. Texas is very much into its at will law. Anyway, we should probably not focus so much on that. Um, Okay, Doug. What 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 are what are you two drinking? Maybe I'll start drinking in a few minutes. Yeah,
0: so Chris was apparently not in on this because he raided my liquor cabinet instead. Yep. But we have some uh we have some rose. I found it at uh ATB. I was going to prepare some mint juleps uh for our guest here, but I couldn't find the mint leaves. So I figured <laughs> rose was the next best thing um for our thinky speaky drinky show.
2: I've been pleased so far, so.
0: <laughs> and this this rosé is... Uh,
1: Vinho Verde? Yeah, it's Portuguese.
0: Is unpronounceable to me. Um, but there's a picture of a pheasant, I believe.
1: Uh, what was on that? <laughs> <laughs> Some of you will get that. Mr. Windsor got that.
0: Yeah, uh, I wasn't making a joke.
1: No, I was. Oh.
0: All right, and uh, yeah, that's that's our drink of choice. Uh, Chris Benhamen decided to make himself... A mixture of gin and sweeten or
1: gin and and sour mix sweet and sour mix. On the bottle it told me that this was a valid drink. Uh and it tastes fine. So.
2: He's a he's a textualist. Yeah. He read the text and followed. And I applied it exactly. And don't you
1: dare tell me that it's not correct because <laughs> it's not my job to decide whether it's correct or not. It's my job to apply the rules. That's right. Yeah.
0: So that's our drink for tonight. Uh, Chris, what is our topic?
1: I want to talk to Mr. Windsor especially about uh, virtue. Oh, boy. Yeah. So Mr. Windsor let slip to me uh, a couple weeks ago three weeks ago, four months ago, maybe in (laughs) class that he had taken a class at some point in the law school called virtue ethics. And my immediate response was how dare anybody purport to teach a class of that title.
2: Well, uh, I don't recall this exact conversation. I do recall, uh, taking a class that had to do with virtue ethics, fortunately for the subject of tonight's talk. Uh, it was actually called law politics and moral character ooh um but moral character moral character indeed but the uh, the thrust of it i think was the was an investigation of virtue ethics its influence or continuing relevance if it has any in law and legislation and in the role of lawyers and judges and the like Boy. well In terms of drinking game, um, the first thing that I came up with,
1: drinking
0: games aren't virtuous.
1: No, well, listen. (laughs) So, one thing I came up with right off the bat was something by the going by the name of straw man, which is essentially if any, whenever any of us brings up like an opposing view on anything we're going to discuss, because here's the thing, I want to clarify this I say virtues. I don't know what that is. What I really want to talk about is the general subject of normativity.
0: I hope y'all are ready to like drink heavily because I always bring up the straw man.
1: Yeah, my larger concern is actually that you don't have sufficient alcohol in order to uh, to, to deal with the subject.
0: <laughs> we can we can figure that out. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that like so. What I really want to talk about more is just basically normativity as a as a general area, which essentially is. As as against descriptive views of the world, normative normative views of the world is essentially here's what you should do, or here's what these things should be, or here's what the should is of any given category, as opposed to just what it is as a, like a basic level. So the first thing I would want to say is we should probably have a drink whenever uh, one of us brings up like, yeah, you say that, but what about this competing view and why isn't that a better way? So that's one thing I can come up with right off the bat.
0: Well, you say that, but is that really <laughs> the best drinking game?
1: Uh, maybe not. Do you have any other ideas? Do you want to give me a competing drinking game?
0: Uh, or gosh. an
1: additional drinking game? Um, Here's another one I can think of right off the bat. Uh, I, I'm almost tempted to call this symposium. If we make reference back to the ancient philosophers,
2: that seems well, that's, like something we should have a drink for. I have to say, that's probably going to happen quite a bit.
1: Yeah, Plato, <laughs> Aristotle, ancient Greek types. Who would walk around and probably attend sophist symposiums? That yep. seems like the kind of thing yeah. we should probably have a drink about as well.
0: I I agree.
1: All right, all right, great. So, Mister Windsor, I want to ask you right off the bat: What's your sense of virtue? Why? Why don't you? I want you to define
2: virtue for me. Well, I think my understanding of virtue is pretty inextricably bound up with my theology yeah i bet and uh so when you ask what's my definition of virtue all i can really say is well to do what god commands okay this is not necessarily indeed it is not what all christians would say through all time as a matter of fact that uh, that branch of sovereign command theory and morals uh, was a real about face from the sort of Christian humanist eth- ethos of Thomas Aquinas and Erasmus and the like. Notice I didn't go too far back. So not,
1: not too far. <laughs>
2: uh, so that's where I am with regard to what virtue is. That, to me, seems to be required by a certain uh, derogation of the ability of humans by themselves to attain virtue. Uh, but that being said, I'd love to hear what your sense of virtue is.
1: Well, before first I'm going to ask Doug his sense of virtue, but before I'd I do that... I'd actually like you
0: to say yours first, because I mine requires me to look up a quote.
1: Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I have a question first, Mr. Windsor. <clears throat> is pious pious because God loves pious?
2: <laughs> uh, the answer is yes.
1: <laughs> oh, I see, I see, I see. <laughs> the Jay Z lyric for for those of you uh, unaware. So, um, isn't Kanye on that song? I think so. Is, is pious pious because God loves pious? Socrates asks, "Whose bias do y'all seek?" Uh, mm-hmm. I think Kanye's on that song. Yeah, I think. So. I think that's a Watch the Throne mm-hmm. song. Yeah. Okay, so I think. I have a very complex view of of virtue, and I think that part of the problem is that I don't necessarily subscribe to any particular version. Like, I wouldn't, like, answer – I don't think I would have a good answer if you asked me, like, what is virtuous? And I think that's the problem. If I had an answer to what is virtuous, I think I'd have a better answer to the question of what is virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, because it seems to me that if you're going to talk about virtue – because there's so many different ways of defining virtue, there's different ways of talking about virtue, and there's different theories of what virtue is, if I at least had an idea on what things are considered virtuous, I'd have a better answer to this question. I think it needs I think we need to talk a little bit more about it before I come up with anything approaching a view of it, to be honest. And I wonder if I've bought enough time for Doug to give an answer
0: Yeah. To that. So, for me, um, I'm going to go with a very, very simple answer, which isn't my complete answer, but my complete answer would probably take uh the entire time of the podcast and we we'll
1: That's kind of the certainly... point. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But uh the starting point for my answer is definitely have either of you watched uh Monty Python The Meaning of Life?
1: No. no uh no.
0: So the way the way the uh movie goes is it's a bunch of um they start at the beginning, here's the meaning of life, and then they do a bunch of skits. And the skits are in a sense sort of like zen cones um, because they don't answer the question they're just silly but right at the end um, they say now here's the meaning of life Uh, well it's nothing very special Uh, try to be nice to people avoid eating fat, read a good book every now and then, get some walking in and try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations
1: how how might you describe that as against like so Josh just went ahead and and hit us with like follow the commands of the of the divine sovereign, right? Ha- it seems like these are like different ends of a spectrum, basically. Like you know what I mean, guys?
0: I don't think they're that different. Um, I I think to be like I think the Monty Python's answer to the meaning of life is very much um, do the good things as stated or that jesus talks about as good things uh they just don't mention jesus and they they skip the middleman in a sense
1: well i guess the spectrum i'm talking about is a little bit different than the the content of the virtue rather the the delivery vehicle of the virtue it seems because josh has just told us like how can there be anything more More powerful, I guess, than being informed that the divine is ordering you to do the following, and then even the way Doug that you read the quote was like it's nothing very special, right? It seems like those are like the opposites of a spectrum, like on the one side, you have the divine sovereign is you know creator of the universe and governor of the universe is instructing you to do the following, and on the other hand, you have all right, listen man, it's not that big a deal. Just, I mean,
2: I guess do the following.
1: That kind of strike you as interesting?
2: Um, it certainly strikes me as interesting. I, to me though, it seems that the focus of those—I won't call them competing—because I don't think they're really talking to each other. Uh, I'd agree with that. Lines <laughs> is just that the one seems to be. I—I I would say that one of them seems almost a little humbler. Namely, Doug's, uh, because almost. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll get a I'll get back around to why I say almost here in a second. It almost seems a little humbler because it it doesn't make any grand pronunciamientos about uh, the metaphysical realities that impose upon uh, our ethical moral conduct. On the other hand, mine did do that. Because it was seeking some of, some authority in which to ground what we call good. And so, you know, the the laundry list of good things that Monty Python, or whoever is the actual character who said <laughs> these words.
0: <laughs> just, Mr. Mr. Python. Mr. Python, Python what might yeah. say. <laughs> I,
2: was, I was unfamiliar, sorry. Sorry. Uh, when he says that he's not there is no authority there it's just sort of on the yeah. basis of we all know these things are right there's a conventional sense of what is good and you should go and follow a convention or something like that yeah. and uh and so i that's why i said almost seems humbler because the fact that authority is left out of that statement seems to presume an authority that we all agree on and uh, that seems to me almost arrogant like we all know that this is cr- the correct way to do life let us now go and do it.
0: <laughs> I I like your statement there. I think part of it, it's the cap it's the punchline to an to an hour long or hour and a half long uh comedy movie. And part of the reason it, it excels as a punchline is because it's this very serious premise. What is the meaning of life? And then they just give like the simplest, silliest, most humble answer. Hey, y'all know what it is. Just you know, be chill. Like after and, and in between those two things is like an an hour and a half of tomfoolery. Um there's there's one scene where some guy goes to a restaurant and eats enough until he explodes. <laughs> um gluttony. Yeah. Uh there's there's one scene where they, they teach a room full of kids um sex education by having sex lust <laughs> <laughs> do, they, do
2: they just go through the seven deadly sins is that the i
0: i haven't thought about that interpretation if i ever see the movie again i'm going to have to um look through it but the the funny thing is is that the gluttony guy didn't like the reason he ate enough until he exploded is he ate a ridiculous amount and then he's like oh, i'm full and then um his waitress was like oh are you sure you don't want you know one little wafer like one one tiny little wafer, and he just keeps pushing the wafer on the guy until he begrudgingly is like, ah, "All right, why not? What what harm could it do?" And then he he explodes.
2: So, so the devil—it's <laughs> a bit of a sorties paradox. I, oh. I should mention, by the way,
1: we did miss a drink because my comment of "is pious pious because God loves pious" is technically a secondhand reference to Socrates slash Plato. So we we owe ourselves okay. a drink on that one. Well.
0: I reject your drinking games and substitute my own. That's fine.
1: But so you're just going to drink throughout? Yes. Okay, that's fine. Um, but I mean, so okay how do I how do I bring this? Oh,
0: sorry. So um, let me let me get back to what I was going to say. Yes, sorry. I think I think um, there's a way besides just the joke of having a very silly answer to a very serious question. Um, I think you could argue uh one of two directions number one is that um like those those that laundry list of of virtue that hung out is really um sort of just the easy answers that everyone in a western uh judeo christian uh society like knows because even if they don't read the bible like the bible has left such a such an imprint. On our and Christianity has left such an imprint on our culture that we derive, um, d- we derive virtue from the Bible, even if, uh, even if we don't directly quote the Bible. Uh, the other answer you could say is that it's sort of a natural law, um, argument. Ooh. Okay, is that those are the those are sort of um, virtues to to for people to get along, um, the, and it's it's what's required from people is.
1: So here is a unique moment where, this is probably the first time on the show, where law gives us something that's actually useful to talk about, and everybody might be interested to hear it. Like, real normal people might be interested to hear it.
2: <laughs> sure Let's,
1: okay, Mr. Windsor, how about this?
0: I think Wes is a real normal person who likes our show.
1: <laughs> well, sorry?
0: Uh, our, our biggest fan. He's in Maryland.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I just mean that, like, when the law gives us something. Mm. Like, Mr. Windsor, please, natural law versus its opponent, positivism. Brief primer.
2: Natural law sees inherent in the fabric of the universe mm-hmm. what uh, our friend Chris here would call normativity. There is embedded, so to speak, an ought not just that the universe is the way things are, but that the way things are carry with them certain meanings. And so uh, you might say that the the traditional virtue of temperance is not something that we just came up with because it happens to be practical, uh, but it is something that is necessary for human flourishing and development because of how we are constituted as humans positivism on the other hand separates law and morals law being uh the things that we are required to do or well, i mean that is contested in and of itself but in primer terms and morals which are maybe somewhere out there but perhaps inaccessible to humans epistemologically uh, perhaps just not there and a sort of godless, nihilistic universe that doesn't give a hot goddamn about us. Uh, There are various ways of splitting legality and morality, but positivism does that. In contravention to a natural lawyer who would say, well, this law does not reflect the the moral, ethical realities of the universe, and therefore cannot carry uh, obliging power, which is the, I don't know, sort of the desideratum of what, law is as we generally think about it so
0: i've had well hang on so just
1: just right before you make the comment you might look at two different authors to these are generally well-known authors to, to sort of help you understand what we're where we're coming from you might look at someone like rousseau who has this idea of the noble savage this notion that you know the closer man can get to their their origins as a natural without society, without civilization type of creature, the closer they get to natural law, and natural law is good. It is noble, the noble savage. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you might have somebody like Nietzsche, who literally you know, proclaims God is dead, and man has killed him, and in order to kill God, man must become as God, and therefore what we are are essentially gods. We establish law, we establish the shoulds and the normatives, and that's who we are and there is nothing higher than ourselves. Doug.
0: So I've had this um this thought about uh natural law analogs. Because certainly America doesn't run on natural law.
1: It runs on Duncan's.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh they're not paying us enough money for you oh. to say that.
1: They're paying me enough money. Uh, well, you, you haven't gotten your own sponsorship yet? God damn.
0: Aren't we a aren't we a joint venture, Chris?
1: Well, listen. Uh, <laughs> I haven't got to that part in business oh, associations, so I Sokla just
0: doesn't cover joint ventures. It's do y'all the same remember? Anyway, do y'all um... remember
1: like growing up and watching those cartoons where like you'd have the cartoon character who'd be like, "I haven't, I haven't learned about gravity in school yet, so gravity doesn't apply to me." Do you remember that stuff?
2: I didn't watch no. cartoons as a child. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> okay, Doug, yeah, go on.
0: So, did you watch like Veggie Tales?
2: No. I did watch some VeggieTales. Me too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I did not realize how, like, Christian-oriented veggie Tales was.
2: They're... How? I came Quite back Christian. as an adult. <laughs> What?
0: I mean, they're so, like, blasé about it, you know?
2: Well, ah. I mean, the, the great truths of uh, existence... Or not something to be blase about. It's just well, so about know, veggie tales.
1: <laughs> the, the whole thing about natural <laughs> yeah. law is that you recognize so, its its tenets and just the, the, the world around yeah, you. So, know? I mean, this world of the, I, and the been, trees.
0: <laughs> anyways, back to the natural law question. Yes, I've been sir. thinking, um, like, our, America's laws aren't based on natural law, but um, we well, sort of.
2: That is contested, but go ahead. But
0: we sort of have, um, at least in our social structure, um, natural laws. Like, what is, what is a faux pas? You know, you can't go to uh, a faux pas code. Um, but I, uh, I I have this, like, I have this question. Do y'all think that um, sort of social norms is an analog to natural law?
1: Well, remember, this kind of calls back to an episode we had in a previous season where we were talking to Parks about the difference between, I remember, you know we we built this whole was this idea a
0: jurisprudence episode
1: yeah and it was a really great talk we 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 talked about like well are law and morals one or are law and morals interrelated in a way that they have a dialogue or are law and morals entirely separate and in fact uh mr windsor that's that's something that you and i will recognize very very astutely from what we've been discussing in bill powers class for the past few weeks indeed um but yeah, I mean, it it bears discussion once again with a new guest and a new context. So, Mr. Windsor, I mean, what do you think? Like, can we properly incorporate, even if they're not statutory, they're not court-enforced? I mean, after all, we've learned this week that courts don't enforce every quote-unquote law that we might have in this country. What What do you think about this notion that maybe there are these these buried laws that we abide by even though they're not court-enforced?
2: Oh, well, I would... I mean, I certainly see that there is a distinction between uh, the law's obliging power and the no less important, I would say more important, obligations that arise from things that are extra-legal, namely custom and social manners and things like what we think of as faux pas. I mean, and this, this is not a new insight. This is... This goes back to Burke. Manners are of greater importance than laws. Well, you're not
0: going to bring it back to like Aristotle so that we can drink?
2: I'm, I'm trying to get us into that temperate uh, virtue here by hook or by crook. <laughs> and uh, so I I definitely I see that distinction. I think it's a very important distinction. I think it should make lawyers much humbler and legislators much more uh aware that their role is not to be a fixer of the world's ills in totality. Uh, those sorts of things require a cultural renewal, uh, which is not always within the purview of law's power. But as to the question whether those that body of cultural norms or manners writ large instantiates in some way the, the natural law, well... I'm not so sure because it's entirely possible to have a social custom that we would now understand to be abhorrent to the natural law. I mean, this is here we go again. This is a straw man coming. Can you feel yeah, it? Can I you can, feel feel it. You can feel it. feel <laughs> it. Uh, the classic example, of course, is slavery, which has been a custom for quite some time. And I'll cheers. I'll cheers to cheers. Cheers to slavery. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but to the straw man. The <clears throat> I think the uh so there is some trouble there with identifying cultural norms with the natural law, but that shouldn't, I don't think, be taken to mean necessarily that the natural law doesn't find its way into the way humans interact. I think it's a central tenet of natural law thinking that those sorts of truths are inescapable, that we cannot legislate them away. Uh we cannot by operation of cultural manners just get rid of them they are sort of perennial in that respect
0: mm-hmm.
2: I would agree with pretty much all of that Doug any thoughts because I've got an, another
1: direction to push this in
0: uh, I'd like to move forward
1: okay
2: now uh, Mister, that's, that's wig podcasting yeah progress <laughs>
0: progress you don't strike me as a progressive
2: oh i'm not strikes me as a wig
1: though (laughs) um the old wig old wig so like a nice white nice nice uh i'm sorry what what's dignified wig (laughs) um and i meant that by by color because of age by the way people not oh my (laughs) god anyway um so at the beginning of this whole you know this whole thing mr windsor you told us that a variant of virtue that you ascribe to might just be obey the commands of the divine sovereign yep well in plato's republic one variant of uh virtue that he described was just follow the commands of thine elders and very quickly the you know the the argument the the critique was raised that well what do they know and why should we follow that if we have reasons to doubt that so is is the distinguish the distinguishing factor for you of just obey being that your elder in that case is
2: uh outside of time or
1: well outside of time okay (laughs) not in fact i'm going to talk to you about physics all right (laughs) i'm asking like Have you, have you built a formulation of this? Yeah, we're talking about
0: metaphysics here, if anything.
1: (laughs) Have you just built a formulation of it basically where it's like, well, everything that, you know, Plato and Socrates have to say is moot when the person you're listening to is without fault? Is that the idea there? I've asked this question 50% to have the drink and 50% because I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I'll
2: let you take one half of this at a time you satisfied? Uh, never really, <laughs> just can't get no the <laughs> I think my answer would be that at a sort of metaphysical and theoretical level, yes, those critiques don't don't obtain when the person or thing entity, whatever to which we owe obedience is in fact perfect. Flawless infallible i mean, and I recognize that there's a then a subsidiary question well, how do we how do we as a fact as a historical fact, know these commands yeah outside of that was question two what our elders have told us yeah
1: that that in fact you've exactly identified where I was
2: going to try to catch you well, so I'm very
1: interested <laughs> to hear what
2: you have to say now well uh let's just say that i've this is a question i've thought about. A great deal myself uh this is about as real as this podcast has ever been (laughs) right now it just seems to me that uh well i should say first that i recognize the epistemological difficulty and so i think that that should and i think i hope it does lead me to a certain intellectual humility about what i can and cannot say with certainty That being said, I think that applies to everyone because we're all operating under more or less the same conditions with variance on similarly flawed intellectual horsepower. But I would then proceed to say, well, I believe this; these tenets of the divine law because people I trust have told me so. That fundamentally is why I believe it. And that seems probably simplistic or almost childish on its face. But on the other hand, uh, unless you are in fact a discoverer, unless, you know, upon reading Chapman's Homer, you're standing upon a peak in Darien, uh, to throw out a little John Keats there, uh, then you too are trusting in something that others have told you. And so you have to have certain criteria by which you judge their trustworthiness. I think some of that can be accomplished through the the historical project. What do we know about the past? Now, this is something that's really only available, so to speak, for historical religions, of which Christianity is one. It makes historical claims about what happened in the world, or at least it does in its more common variants. Is that quite rare,
1: actually? I mean, did you suggest that that was rare? I'm sorry, you might have just said that, that it was one of some that did that.
2: Uh, well, I would say that as far as I know, none of the Eastern religions require that. Ah, require versus attempt. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So I, so I think some of the historical, uh, aspects of Christianity lend themselves to investigation in a way that can allow us to set criteria for trustworthiness. Well, do these writers in fact tell us something that is sensible, that makes sense, uh, also do we know that these writings are integral in the sense that they have maintained their in, their integrity down through the centuries and then of course we have to deal with the old david hume problem you know when he talks about miracles he says well even if you have a friend who comes running up to you and says that he has just seen a miracle you ought to disbelieve him because the likelihood of miracles is so low that his trustworthiness does not overcome the fact that the miraculous just doesn't happen, he's just misseen something. we should attribute perception of the miraculous to flaws in perception
1: mm-hmm. rather
2: than to an actual uh, change in the st- or an invasion of the natural by the supernatural so now, does it, does he mean that on a on
1: a global level or on an individual basis though because I, that strikes me that that comment you just made. Is it makes a lot more sense on a statistical individual basis, where you might each individual person who claims to have witnessed a miracle, you could easily say, "Well, listen, on the grand scheme of the of just the math weighs against you."
0: Well, I also have, and this is a semantic argument, but um, that that line invasion of the natural by the supernatural, uh, you don't like it. I I don't like it because if you're going to uh, go with God, like He is, then a natural force of the universe, especially because we're talking about natural force,
1: natural law, and, and normativism in the sense of you know the the notion that all of this can be defined in a certain way where there are things you should be doing. I I, I can see Doug's complaint about
2: separating. Well, I would. I would defend the statement, one, by saying that I was talking about David Hume, who definitely would see anything right. supernatural and, as an invasion. And you have
0: to humor him.
2: Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> this is... Uh, I might just... Are you I, about to walk I might walk out. This is absurd. Uh, but also, because it's I... It's humiliating, really. Okay.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh boy
2: i would oh man I would say you should,
0: you should look at him he's fuming
2: <laughs> no that's just mispronunciation that's that's no good that's,
0: <laughs> that's yeah all right that was that was a bit that, um, was, that, that was a bit. look that i was understand
2: bit. Yeah. that uh you know who was it? Tacitus. Nothing that is human is foreign to me. Uh, but in this case, I really would just could stop. I would appreciate it. Well, I mean, you know, from a normative
1: perspective, shouldn't we all just live in barrels and kind of... Uh... Okay, Diogenes.
2: Yes.
0: That is the... Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but that is our cover art for our podcast. And that's Diogenes a drink. Diogenes in a barrel.
2: One of my favorite stories from the ancient world is of Diogenes.
1: Uh, let me just before yes is it the Alexander one
2: is it the Fender no is it, Five is it the it, Alexander one it is not get out okay. of my shade okay yeah. go on go on uh Diogenes of course sitting in his barrel having a fine old time as always as as, as ever living in his dog-like way the uh an interlocutor came up to him, one of these who held to the sophistical notion that all movement is an illusion.
1: <laughs> Wait, hang on.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm Man, sorry. I, that's oh, not even uh, the punchline. No, this, that is the punchline. <laughs> Extraordinarily successful joke.
1: This is, listen, this is the sophist <laughs> symposium and I just love that you told me a story about the sophist who said, Well all all <laughs> All motion is an illusion. <laughs> Go on.
2: At <I> any <laughs> Now I feel mad about the rest of this story. No, no, no. I'll uh, probably love it even more. Uh, the anyway, he said, you know, all movement is an illusion. What do you have to say to that, Diogenes? And Diogenes <laughs> didn't say a thing. He just got up and walked away. <laughs> I've always thought of that as the sort of paradigmatic example of solvitur Ambulando. In this instance, a philosophical inquiry was indeed solved by walking.
1: Well, it's not exactly what you've defined, but a very similar story is, is the idea of, listen, you can entertain the arguments of a skeptic all you want, but you notice that when they're finally done talking, they tend to leave through the door and not the window. <laughs> it's true. Just saying. Yeah. Um. But really, we we you know we sort of strayed back into a sort of general notions of philosophy, and we should probably try to focus back into normativity.
0: I have, I have a question for yeah. the two of you about virtue. Then, do you think, in in general, not. For your specific life, although you could certainly answer this in a personal way. Um, Do you think it's difficult to be virtuous, and do you think it should be difficult to be virtuous?
1: I think it depends very much on your definition of what is virtuous, to figure out whether it's difficult. What was the second part of that?
0: Uh, do you think it should be difficult to be virtuous?
2: That's an equally difficult question, I think. Um so is is there a virtue a virtuousness is yeah. there a shouldness of shouldness?
0: yes
1: yeah essentially does normativity does normativity give itself enough foundation to survive on its own legs i think is his question part 2 of his question um, well of course not that's why it requires authority well does it require authority i mean I, I you know you might i might come up with for example you know if i if i believed that Let's go someplace easy for shoulds, for normativity. Let's go to economics. Relatively easy place. If I truly believe that, you know, hard work and entrepreneurial spirit and a sense of, you know, self starting is what gets people to be successful in a free market economy. Ah. <laughs> Preach it. If I truly believe that, then I might think that the normativity of doing those things stand on their own legs because I could say, well yeah, you should act that way because the definition of success is to be that way. Because success is got that way. And once you are successful, you reap actual benefits. Within the, you know, the whole scope of the thing we're talking about gives you benefits for being a certain way. So you should be that way. Then it seems like normativity stands on its own legs. So like Mr. Windsor. Like in, in what situations does it not stand on its own legs, I guess.
2: Well, I don't I don't see how the possibility of getting benefit is any more than a descriptive statement. You will get benefit right. from undertaking the following actions. Well, I guess we have to define benefit in in fact a normative type, kind of way. I mean Well, I, we should have to say that well, I think it's sort of made more difficult by the fact that benefit uh Carries with it normative connotation. No, that's exactly my point. But it is not, in fact, all that. N- I don't think there's any particular normative heft to saying you'll get paid more. Okay. Which is what happens in a market economy if you work real hard and things go right. Well, <laughs> <And> things <laughs> I was gonna go say. right. <laughs> work real hard, and eh, we'll see. And the market doesn't collapse, you know. Or you know,
1: you don't get thefted or ponzi'd or something else.
0: Yeah, in in some sort of magical place where they appreciate the value of workers.
1: Oh, here we go. Mm, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> well,
0: certainly, I mean that that implies that a market economy appreciates the value of workers, and that's why if if you raise your value as a worker, you, then you receive value.
1: But then that, 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 again, there's the question: Why should you value being valued?
0: Well, I'm you. You're given value, and value is in more ca- more capital
1: or right exactly or why should you value that like yeah, because i think
0: that's not because what a market economy actually values is uh production of wealth
1: or just wealth so yeah. by by accumulation of wealth. by effect yeah i think josh's overall yeah. point is that every time you establish a normative point if you dig deeper you start to realize that the normative the, the, yeah. the foundation of every normative argument is itself normative and if you just keep going You either get turtles all the way down or Or God. Well,
0: you can point to God as an endpoint as as a true endpoint for any um, moral or virtue, virtuous quandary. It's virtuous because God says so. And that's the endpoint.
1: So now that we've gotten here.
0: I mean, that's what Josh said uh, right at the beginning of the podcast. Well, not
1: quite. Actually, now I'm going to have him actually say it. Oh, here we go. Mr. Windsor. I think at this point, we have built the foundation for you to start describing to us why the divine might be a kind of perfect normative singularity, where if you just point there, you no longer have to do the work of digging down through normative layers. And while you talk about that, I'll be right back.
2: Well, as soon as he leaves, I, I'm just going to have to say I don't understand the question.
1: Okay. Okay. Let me clarify. Okay, he's back. So we've already talked about the fact that for every normative statement you want to make, the reality is that, you know, let's say I say, for example, well, in an economy, a a free market economy, you know, do well at the free market stuff and you get benefit. And your immediate answer was benefit. That's just descriptive. I mean, you have to continue to, I think what you meant is also, and this is the way I think. You have to continue to define the things you get in a normative sense in order to give the normative statement of, well, you know, do well at these things and you'll succeed, to give it normative legs. Or rather, legs that stand up on its own, right? So, like, you should do these things because they objectively are better for you, right? That's normative, and the only way to fully, like, give it its normative foundation is to continue to define the things you get normatively. Does that make...
2: I follow you thus far.
1: Okay. What I thought that Doug was getting at, and what I'm definitely getting at, is essentially, so at the top of the episode, you kind of described, okay, just do what the Divine Sovereign tells you. I would imagine that you don't feel like that requires a kind of normative self-sufficiency because you can just point at a divine sovereign who you have described as faultless, impervious to mistake, impervious to um, flaw, and just say, well, clearly follow that. Like, what are we even talking about? Just follow that, Right do you see
2: so you're asking why i think we should follow the commands of god
1: i'm asking if you believe that there's something if if what is different about just pointing to god and saying follow that the difference between if the difference between that and saying accumulate wealth in a economic system so why you might point to one thing and say you're just defining things normatively but to the other one you might say no that's clearly correct
0: yeah so that's my question if, and I'll be if right i back. could break it down um i think what chris is saying although I, I don't like to um assume what others are saying but i think what chris is saying is like if your mom tells you to clean your room and you ask her why and she says because i say so um you might not accept that as an answer but if Someone tells you you do this to be good, and you ask why, and they say because God says so. Why is that a better answer than because mom says so?
2: Well, I would just say because of the character of the say or so.
0: Right, and I I think that's a very easy answer because God. Like that is that that's the end point. That's like,
2: yeah, that's where I'm at.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's it's it's a self answering question. Um, if if you follow that frame of, uh.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I don't really want to, to paint that appeal to the divine as a shortcut for thinking. Right. And I don't, I don't want it to be, as benjamin kind of suggested, a way of cutting so, Chris, cutting off uh, the turtle could, level.
0: If I could answer uh, your question, yeah, with please do, quote. because um, I, I
1: think that I maybe had a hard quote. time communicating. Here's it. the
0: quote. They don't think it be like it is, but it do
1: well, yeah, and that's kind of my concern, right is that
0: you like know, the the literal the answer is because God says so right like it's it's an end
1: point but that 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 is exactly kind See, of my concern is that you know you're pointing you know one might as Josh has done point to something and just say "There you go, but the distinction at a fundamental level. Sort of
0: Yeah, why can you point at God and say, there you go, but you can't point at Diogenes and say, there you go.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm getting at. It's <laughs> essentially, why does one thing stand on its own legs normatively, but the other one does not? And that's what I was trying to pull out of Josh, is it basically like, well, is it because you can point to the one thing and say, because that is without flaw, you naturally should follow that. I mean, one variant of this line of question, yeah. if we wanted to get really heretical. So, hang
0: on, what is Josh's answer here? Because I'd, I'd really like to hear that. Uh,
2: I, uh, as I think I intimated, but perhaps wasn't explicit about. Well,
0: Chris wasn't in the room.
2: I, I do think it has to do with the character of who says so.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: When Diogenes tells me to do something, I know that he's a subject to the fall, so to speak, to put it in theological terms. As anything, uh, Natural. And uh, God is not.
1: Oh, well, okay, so so follow me here. So let's assume... I may uh, or may not. I don't know your personal views on this. Let's assume that there is a devil.
2: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I was
1: waiting, like, <laughs> is he going to say, like, well, I'll have you know, Sonny.
2: Um, Talked to Old Slewfoot last night.
1: So, <laughs> Beelzebub. So... If if you believe in this sort of world in which you have opposite ends to a spectrum of authority? I don't know how to frame this question. Why shouldn't I just follow the devil? I guess it is one version of this question. And I'm looking for an answer that's not just because we are told to follow God. Like is there something is there something sort of objectively normative about Oh goodness. I feel I, I can feel how far we're getting off the, the beaten the, the trail here. The track. <laughs> this of the is definitely
0: a virtue question. It is why, a virtue. Why do you question? do what God says, and not what the devil says? Yes,
1: that, that that's But I'm,
0: literally, the that's a question of virtue. I'm
1: trying to figure out the way to ask it so that I can clearly indicate what I mean because it's like one obvious well, answer. You're would using be, a few too many words to do that. I think. Okay, let's just try it to start with. Yeah, Josh, why should I not just follow the commandments of the devil?
2: Well, because the devil—I don't even want to talk about the devil. I Feel like the devil's not really relevant to this.
1: Okay, because the devil is bad.
2: No, well, yeah. it's it's bad, and in the sort of classical Christian mind, evil doesn't have an independent existence. It is a an absence of goodness, and so when we when we you know the the classical analogy is to light and dark. Dark isn't. It has no positive identity. It is, in fact, just the absence of light. And so when we're talking about the devil as a sort of personification of the principle of evil, I mean, that's sort of, I suppose, a a pop culture way of speaking of the devil. But, in fact, there is no real principle of evil because there's nothing principled about it. It makes no objective, or excuse me, not objective, it makes no positive claims, so to speak.
1: So let me ask you this. It makes
2: detractive claims.
1: If you So you follow God. You follow the divine sovereign as you define it, slash him, slash,
2: right? I say him, but okay. you say what you want.
1: So, well, I mean, whatever you want, right? Sure. So we're talking about your perspective on it. What What confidence do you have that you are, in fact, following the divine? Because, you know, we talked at some length. You've got... The confidence you have in certain tenets are brought to you by your forefathers, and they've, you know, they've got versions of statements that have been brought down through the eons, and those things are ostensibly related to this divine sovereign we discussed. Yes. And th- now we're going to go all the way back to basically Plato, Socrates. So another drink is is warranted, and I'm trying to motivate Doug to get down to the bottom of his glass over there.
2: He's Um, he's sitting over here reading emails. I don't don't know. I'm not
0: reading emails. I'm searching for another. I'm searching for a Thomas Aquinas quote because I. It's very beautiful, and I'd love to quote it in entirety, but I can't seem to find it. Um, It's something like the requisite is the silence which gives, uh, and it's it's very much on this talk of light and darkness. The requisite, the gist of it is the silence that gives something, something. Anyway, um. Anyways, so too is is evil required for appreciation of good, uh, and even, even said, just the little bits well, of
1: that sounded beautiful, right?
0: Today. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, the yeah, the just of it is the silence which gives uh, sweetness to the prayer or something like that. So too is uh, good. So too is evil required for appreciation of good. Wow, um, that's as close as I'm going to get. And the idea is that, like you, you brought this up, but sort of in a one way streak that, like. Good is the absence of evil. But in a sense, we need both... Other way around. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, evil is the absence <laughs> of good. Yes, light um, is the absence of darkness. Yeah, light is the absence... <laughs> sorry, darkness is the absence <laughs> of light. But you need... Uh, and this is what Aquinas brought up, is you need darkness to appreciate light because it's the it's the contrast and that was there. If there was only light, you wouldn't understand that it was light. And in the same way, if there was only good, you wouldn't understand it was good. Um, I was, so like, how does that, uh, weigh in on your point that while I was searching for the quote, I was, uh, missing?
2: Well, I mean, don't, don't you sort of yearn for a world in which you don't have to appreciate the good because we just live in it? I,
0: but like the, the idea is that. We we would recognize that good is
2: good. Well, but if you so well, if we were good, we would recognize the good as good,
0: right? But when you, say you're looking at a painting and it's not a um Roscoe like black painted canvas, uh, God, the, I hope so. Yeah, the the thing that makes like a a painting beautiful is the contrast between the colors, because if you just take a painting that's literally just gray, and this is why I said unless you're looking at a because even even a has contrast.
1: Um, but one might, uh, but it's, perhaps it's, one might behold a chiaroscuro work of the yeah Caravaggio tradition, for like, example.
0: Frankly, <laughs> frankly, I I think it would be a very bland world. Uh, the one you're describing is if if we removed contrast.
1: Well Josh is suggesting that it might still be good in a in a in kind of objective sense. And maybe subjective. Yeah, and sense. this
0: is where this is where I'm curious if that's possible because um and and certainly if it is possible then it's it's fantastic. We should definitely go for it. Uh 100% <laughs> I'm on it.
1: But what are we talking about? Are we talking about Well we're
0: about- we're saying can you can you only have good like, let's say everyone yeah. in the world becomes virtuous. Can you right. can you remove the evils from society?
1: So I'm thinking, or does
0: good only exist because it's in opposition to evil?
1: So this is an example. It's it's not the example, and Josh therefore, wants. evil being required to make good. This is not the example I think Josh wants because it's a very different sort of view of it. But did you guys watch at any point growing up uh, Equilibrium? No,
2: never heard of it. Okay.
1: I wonder if it even bears discussing Then, <laughs> Let's just go with whatever Josh is going to, to comment on the question asked. Well, is there a normative goal to uniform goodness?
0: I swear, if you say normative one more time. <laughs> it's the
1: episode! I say virtue, but really we've been talking about normativity.
2: Uh, I mean, if the question is, should we work for good in society... It's not the question, but go on. Then yes, well, Well, I I suppose I don't quite understand the question. So my
0: question is: Do you think we can live in a society that's all good with zero evil?
2: No, but that doesn't like that doesn't have to do with the attainability of it.
0: No, no, no. no, Hang on. Do you think, like in an idyllic world, it's attainable? In a perfect world,
2: in a world that's unattainable, it's attainable. So Josh, not helpful. (laughs)
1: Imagine Josh. Imagine your utopia. Well, because so I want to know because what your question is, I think Doug is in Josh's utopia. Like, if Josh could build a perfect society from the ground up, if Josh could write the Republic, would it be possible?
0: the The deeper part of my question is: Do you think good is attainable without some evil to compare it to? Yes. All right, so yeah, and why do you think that is? Like, why do you think good is is something that can be defined without defining evil?
2: Uh, because, well, I, I suppose I'm, I have no idea where this question well, is coming from. Even do
0: you think, even just, in
2: terms of the the Aquinas quote, it had nothing to do with the definition of well, good or evil. It didn't have anything to do with the substantive content of the notions of good or evil. Just pointing out that. As far as flavors go, as far as sounds go, having these two in contrast makes us appreciate the good one.
0: I think I, yeah, I think is, it goes well okay, further yeah. though, because I think um certainly I, I think good and evil are comparative terms. Um sort of a better or worse. Right? But like can you have better without worse?
2: Well, I just deny that good and evil are comparative terms. I think okay. evil so is you, probably a comparative term in a certain sense, because because, because what it is is less than good. good.
0: Right. So but, then, why but is good is a, an absolute? Why is that a one-way screen? Like, why is good an absolute?
2: Well, I mean, if you want to get very metaphysical, it's because all good things are grounded in the character of God, who okay. is the single prime positive uh, substance of the universe. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Yeah. And there we go. That's, that's an answer I was looking <laughs> yeah. for.
2: Okay. Yeah. I guess I was fact, trying to struggle yeah,
0: I was, to see uh, where you were yeah, going. I, I wanted to know what your answer to that was. And
1: in fact, Doug, uh, this might be the opportunity to circle back to the unanswered question from the beginning of, of this line, which is – Speaking of
2: which, very moving Charles Ives' piece okay, featuring a trumpet <coughs> solo, which was later movingly quoted – in uh, John Adams on the transmigration of Souls. There sure
0: is a lot of motion in this situation. <laughs> Does that mean it's an illusion?
2: Ah, yeah, well, uh, John Adams is a minimalist composer, so he might say so. I'm glad that we linked up on that little reference. Go on. Uh, all I was going to say is that uh, the unanswered question uh, bears investigation for the musicologist among our audience as well. Mm.
0: Yeah, Fair. the virtuosos Fair. who are interested in virtue. <laughs> I love it. So been holding that one for like thirty <laughs> minutes.
2: So 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 I think it would be virtuosi
1: though. <laughs> the you. the uh question from earlier that I think got went completely sort of undiscussed was under the everything that we talked about so far, and especially considering the limitations of man to understand basically the teachings of his elders on Theology.
0: So, hang on. All right. No, sorry. We got to get there, right? We got to get there. I shouldn't interrupt this, but just real quick. You know how um, Teddy Roosevelt had that plaque on his desk, the buck stops here. Do you think God also has a plaque on his desk? Because that's like Josh's answers are kind of just you get to God, and God's just like the buck stops here. Well, in
1: fact, that's my whole point about like this is like this normative singularity of like you look at God, and it's like all right, done. Like. there yeah. you go. You don't have to talk anymore because there's the normativity right there. Yeah.
2: I am sort of struggling as to why you don't like that.
1: I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm saying it's unique as against other methods of uh what will we call it? Um making a circle with logic. Sure. Or or you could call it um well, I mean, when we, logic justification. It it's like a completely unique method of justification. Because everything else, it seems, needs a kind of foundation that you build up with this very complex system of shoulds. And the shoulds are all dependent upon other shoulds. And those should like, eventually it's turtles all the way down. Except the, you know, divine... Well, it's
0: turtles all the way down, or you can loop it and make a logical argument.
1: Yeah. But I think you you see the difference between that and just looking to the divine sovereignty and just say, oh, done point there, and it's all good, so the question that I had earlier that I don't think we ever actually talked about was, considering that we're dependent upon our elders to tell us what the divine sovereign wants, how do we do how are we to be sure which divine sovereign we are following? What if we are in fact following corn or uh the blood god? or Corn with a
0: k like the
1: band the k-h-o-r-n-e <laughs> oh it was the warhammer blood god so like i've never no. heard of this yeah no no but but again like that's that's, that's really... almost kind of the point wow. is the the joke comes down to like i'm all about armok what's our <laughs> what is our what is our confidence considering we have no direct communication in following what might no. be asserted also as disputed?
2: the correct well dispute yeah I mean it is also disputed. I'm not going to dispute. yeah I don't think it's necessary. I love, for I love this.
0: burning some bushes to get into communication
1: with God yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, then you might have a very serious conversation about which God you're trying to uh contact, but you know
2: which anyways. bushes
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the real uh the real theological question yeah anyways
2: so you're asking i hope me you
1: understand how do I mean. we choose a god no. I'm asking, how, are you, how can you be confident that you...
2: Well, if so you're, you're asking me point, how I can be confident, can I have to... to say I'm not. But I also, okay. I also have to look around and say, what else would give me greater confidence? And I don't see anything. And so when it comes right okay. down to it, I have to ask myself, well, no system, no other system that I know of gives me confidence. I might as well to put it in a sort of resigned way, trust to the wisdom of my ancestors whom I trust and whom by certain criteria I can establish their trustworthiness. Which gambit is that? Can you remind me? It's sort of a Pascalian. Yeah, Pascal's gambit? Pascal's wager, yeah. Wager, thank you. Uh, So, it's... Pascal's wager is, to me, very unsatisfying. But then I think that's a characteristic of of the rational life is that it is unsatisfying, and at the end of the day we have to pick an answer so viewer listener
1: viewer I say viewer, even though i I <laughs> razed uh Doug in one episode about like well, if you're watching the show, and I was like,, hey, they can't watch the show um Pascal's wager is this old line I learned this in ninth grade by the way, had a very good English program <laughs> at my high school that's extraordinary um pascal's wager was listen there's two possibilities and obviously there's some you know problems with this that for that initial argument but let's just move on there's two possibilities either god exists or god does not exist if god exists and you believe in god and you follow god's commandments you end up in heaven and then you have eternal life if god does not exist then there's no imp- – like, nothing happens. Like, you, you either – you just die, right? So you have two options in life. You can either follow God's commandments or you cannot. If God exists and you follow his commandments, you go to heaven. If God exists, you don't follow his commandments, you go to hell. If God doesn't exist, you follow his commandments, nothing happens. If God doesn't exist, you don't follow his commandments, nothing happens. So on the whole, it seems like the Pareto Optimum, in economics terms, is to believe in God and follow his commandments because – If you know, all else being equal, if there's even a chance that you get to go to heaven, you might as well pursue that. Is that a fair way to? to That's a a fair present, fair primer on
2: (laughs) Pascal's wager. I've always thought about it in Pareto optimum terms, a little uh... sort of anachronistic, but I can see how that would work. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So it's uh, getting around to that wrapping up around that time. Okay. Yeah. Any any longer and it becomes much hard, much more difficult to edit. Fair enough. Uh, because like about an hour and 10 minutes and it starts exceeding
2: my computer's uh, virtue. <laughs> uh, I think there you're probably referring to the old meaning of virtue. Yes. Virtus power. Virtus? Yes. Being connected with we being the Latin yes. for manfulness. Yep. The qualities of the yeah, good man.
0: So uh, this is the part of the show where we all give our final thoughts on virtue. Um, I'll begin. I my my final thought on virtue is uh something I would have liked to express a bit earlier in the show is that I think it's in a way a silly thing to pursue because it's like uh if you think you can be a good person by following virtues you're putting the cart in front of the horse. Um, In a lot of ways, and it it comes down to how we define virtue, Uh, because we we typically define virtue as doing good things. But that's like saying, you know, if I want to be happy, I need to go around smiling all the time. Or if I want to be like my professors, I need to make my handwriting like theirs. Um, It's. it, It requires a different way to teach virtue is. Um, how to become a person that is virtuous and then does these things um, that virtuous people do rather than saying uh, we need to be a virtuous person by doing what virtuous people do. Uh, so those are that's something I would have liked to discuss in the show, but unfortunately uh, didn't get the opportunity to do so.
1: Time does sort of constrict us. Josh? Uh,
2: well, I would say that... Um I would accept the old definition that virtue is uh, a quality of the inner man, Uh, but my understanding of how that virtue comes about is, as we have discussed, uh, basically, not basically, totally dependent upon obeying the sovereign commands of God. I understand that this leaves some people unsatisfied, but to my mind, the whole project of reasoning about the human condition is unsatisfying. And so uh, we should, here we are sitting comparing things and looking for something that's a little more satisfactory, given the data we have. And that's where I'm at.
1: Yeah, I think that I'm going to take those two views and maybe broaden uh, Doug's view in saying that the thing that I was really hopeful that we would get at this episode, and I'm glad we really got into it was this sort of dichotomy in the normativism between you know our own attempts you might look at Nietzsche for an example to try to fundamentally support the shoulds of our lives the the virtue or the or the you know normativism of you should do this or you should do that in a purely sort of materialistic sense. Versus the sort of singularity of normativity, which is God commands that you do. And the really interesting thing that I feel like we've really picked at between Mr. Windsor and us two, who are maybe decidedly less uh, confident in the clout of a divine sovereign. um, Heathens. Heathens, heathens indeed. Heathens, indeed. (laughs) Is really this this very interesting dichotomy that I've described is that, you know, you can talk about normativity and you can try to define normativity. But really what, what gets exposed is not only the kind of weird singularity that is, that is uh, inherent or inheres in, as lawyers would say, the divine sovereign, but also the sort of, you know, endless pit, the abyss that normativity falls into. For me and Doug, which is the issue of, well, how do you, how do you fundamentally underpin any of this? Because, you know, you can either talk about the thing you can point to and just forget the conversation of normativity, or you can try to underpin everything on, you know, materialistic normativity, and then just get mired in a pit where it's like...
0: Don't answer for me. (laughs) Your your turtle's all the way down. Josh is the buck stops here. Mine is it makes a circle.
1: Okay, fair enough. You did did describe the circle a couple of times, but I am going to have to say as my final thought that my issue is it's hard for me to understand the circle you've described, so I remain in the camp of you got two choices. You can either point to The normative singularity, good luck. I mean, many have throughout history. (laughs) Or you can point to the normative abyss, and good luck with that, too. (laughs) So at the end of the day... Or you could hope that the circle will be unbroken.
2: By and by, Lord, by and by. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Wait. hang on, hang on. Oh
1: my god, the next line of that. Hang Hang on, hang on, hang on, I got this.
0: You're probably thinking the Bioshock version. I am
1: thinking the Bioshock yeah, the, version. Yeah, because the
0: the real version is slightly different. I love
1: the Bioshock version. Oh my god, it's so it's good. Because it's, it's y'all's two first lines that you just gave. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Audience. Anyways. We shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, deal. well... This, <laughs> thank you so yeah. much for listening in. Uh, this... Uh, every episode this season is like one of the best seasons, episodes and seasons I think so far. We are so happy to have brought you Mr. Saxe-Coburg tonight. <laughs> uh and windsor like, that is well listen <laughs> um thank you so much for listening in we are so grateful that you uh choose to listen to us to the <laughs> to the uh rejection of any of the other useful use of your time to you know misuse normativity as much as i can and we hope you will listen in next time have a great night and thanks very much